Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you a woman running a small business or do you know a female entrepreneur? As part of Visa Canada's commitment to support small businesses and female entrepreneurs, they've partnered with iFund Women to offer $10,000 grants and a year of business coaching to 10 deserving applicants. Learn more and apply at ifundwomen.com forward slash visa hyphen Canada today. That's ifundwomen.com forward slash visa hyphen Canada. Vaccine rollout. It's on everyone's mind after weeks of lockdown and the emergence of new, dangerous, fast-spreading COVID-19 variants. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I talked to three experts about the challenges and opportunities of vaccine distribution in Canada perhaps the single biggest issue right now affecting the economic recovery. My first guest, Colin Furness, is an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. And he talked about the stumbling blocks that Canada has hit so far, as well as the biggest lessons he's learned one year into the pandemic. Dr. Adel Kapper, an emergency physician in Ottawa and the co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Public Affairs Committee, provided an inside view of the emergency rooms in our hospitals, which were already strained before the pandemic. Lastly, I talked to Dr. Akwatu Kenti, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health and a senior scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. He explained how he's working to clear up misconceptions about vaccines, which will be a key issue as the country moves forward. As always, the interviews were edited for clarity and brevity. Colin Furness, thanks so much for joining me today. I wanted to ask what your impressions are so far, broadly speaking, of Canada's vaccine rollout. Well, there's two levels to think about. One is the procurement, uh, which is the federal government and the contracts that it signed and its strategy. And then, of course, there's the actual delivery and administering the vaccine, which is done by the provinces. It's been uneven across the country. I think typically, as it is with so many things, the bigger the province, the bigger the challenges, right? So, you know, Ontario and Quebec have had difficulties. They're very big. Uh, Prince Edward Island is doing fantastic. They're a lot smaller in terms of the actual distribution logistics. Those logistics are made even harder by that cold storage, uh, very cold storage requirement that means you can't just ship it out to pharmacies and doctor's offices and say it'll be fine. So that's been difficult. On the federal level, on one hand, Canada did really well putting eggs in lots of baskets, doing it aggressively. We bought, I think, more doses per capita than any other country or pretty close. So there's that on one hand. And then there's the, well, by spreading our eggs in lots of baskets, the winner that we have, um, we're not really near the top of the list. We didn't actually put that many um, eggs in this particular basket. And Canada's not the only country that has suffered from changes to delivery schedules and delays. Germany has. I mean, Pfizer's a German company, and, and Germany's had a real slowdown, too. So it's not a uniquely Canadian problem. But, you know, the contracts that were negotiated were kept confidential. Lack of transparency isn't usually good news. It, it didn't allow public scrutiny, and I think it set the government up to kind of get a bit of a black eye when people formed expectations, and the, and the federal government created those expectations, and then through really, in some ways, no fault of its own, couldn't couldn't meet them. So I think it, it's 
communication strategy, I think, has left people really frustrated. Its procurement strategy was a win in one way, but obviously not in another. And then each province has had a hard time, difficult time dealing with the logistics as well as the delays. And obviously people are frustrated. I feel like the glass looks half empty to a lot of people right now because of expectations. I think we could look at this as glass half full. We weren't expecting really, even in November, to start vaccinating before January. So we're we're at, we're behind being having been way more ahead than we thought we were going to be, and in that sense, I think it's it's the the frustration and and the pessimism around this. I think in a lot of ways is emotional. It's real, but I think it's emotional. It's a question of expectations, maybe on some level. When I think many people look to the U.S. or and it looks like you know after many months of the U.S. sort of bungling a lot of things, they seem to be distributing the vaccine faster than Canada is. And so it does sort of, I think, upset everyone's expectations. When we compare ourselves to the U.S., we have to be careful because there's the visible U.S. and then there's the invisible U.S. And by the invisible U.S., I mean a lot of marginalized, disenfranchised folks who don't have health care coverage, who don't have interactions with the health care system, who in many cases would have been sick and, and in some cases died without even being documented. So there is a huge population there that we're not hearing about. And not only are they not getting vaccinated quickly, they may not be getting vaccinated at all. So we have to remember that, that Canada is slow, but it is a lot more equitable, uh, including prioritizing First Nations, which is, I think, something that we have a, a moral obligation to do. And I think that's a good thing. So the, the comparison between the two countries is, is difficult. Ultimately, I think our approach being more equitable is going to be better for social justice and better for everybody. You don't have to care about social justice to recognize that COVID exploits people who are vulnerable. And if we want to protect everyone from COVID, then we really need to look carefully at prioritizing that. So in a sense, I think the Americans are going at it, although they're doing it quite rapidly, they're going at it from the wrong end. Instead of starting with the most marginalized, it's people with the best, with, with the most money or influence or access. We're trying to do it the other way around. I think our strategy is better, but it is, it is the question of, in, in this case, does the slow horse win the race in, in a way that people see as a win. I had a question for you going back to the strategy of procurement. We have a national health care system in Canada in the sense that every province has health care systems. Has that enabled us in any way to achieve economies of scale that other countries haven't? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, as a country, we may be physically very big, but our population is very small compared to many countries. That's a that's a problem. Whether or not we have a distributed healthcare system between provinces and countries when it comes to procurement internationally, our country is still only so big and our pockets only so deep. I think that's a limiter. The advantage of having a distributed healthcare system between the provinces, or at least the ideal advantage, is that different systems can learn from each other. Uh, Jane Jacobs, the urban planner, uh, famous urban planner, said one thing that's always stuck with me. Um, all governments make mistakes. Big governments make big mistakes. And so the bigger the government, the more likely it is to make a real whopper of a mistake. Having 10 different healthcare systems means some will do a better job, some will do a worse job. And at our best, we're paying attention to that and, and trying to emulate uh, health systems that have actually done a good job and managed to find a good solution. So that diversity actually should be a strength. When it comes down to procurement, though, again, ultimately, it's, it is the federal government and the size of the country. And it's just a, a sort of straight-up money issue? 
I think it probably is. Uh, we spent we spent heavily. No one has said that the government of Canada did not spend money on this. We definitely did. We spent a lot, but we put eggs in lots and lots of baskets. So for any one particular vaccine provider, no matter who got approved first, we were going to be in line. That was the Canadian win. People sort of forget that now because it's obvious who's who's won in terms of vaccines. And now we're noticing that we're we're in the line, but we're not near the front of the line. And and so I think that's that's the the thing. I I don't dislike our strategy. I wish the contracts had been public. I think I wish there had been a bit more transparency. And I think it would have been helpful to have had some clauses in those contracts about what happens um, if the vaccine manufacturer can't deliver uh, in time, right? If we'd if we'd argued for those sorts of things, it, it might be. I'm not sure that other countries maybe actually had consequences in the contracts that made those deliveries more important. I don't know, but I just know that. Our, our procurement could probably could have been better in hindsight, and and definitely don't keep contact track secret. That's 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 not going to help anyone. <laughs> okay, putting the vaccine rollout aside for a second, there are these new variants which are more contagious, potentially more deadly. You've talked publicly about a third wave coming in April, and I was wondering if you could just tell me what it is that you're concerned about. No, certainly. Well. The data shows in Ontario that's already happening, and it's it's hard to make out from the data. The data shows across the world that COVID cases are dropping, and that's an interesting case right there because it's clearly not weather related, and it's not related to specific interventions because it's going it's 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 really across the board. That's really fascinating, but it's actually it's hiding something that is a little bit more worrisome, which is countries that haven't seen much of the variant yet. If you actually separate countries that have the labs to do this, and there's not many who do, if you separate regular COVID from variant COVID, you find that regular COVID is dropping very fast, but variant COVID is actually on the rise. And that on the rise, because the variant certainly here is not dominant yet, isn't being noticed. But at a certain point, uh, sometime in the next few weeks, I think we're going to start to see the numbers bump up again. And it's, it's again, it's these two curves, regular COVID going down to zero and variant COVID climbing. In a way, I want to consider them two different diseases because they've got two different epidemiologies, right? And and, and so that's something we need to understand. That's why I've, I've forecasted that I think April is going to be an unpleasant month for us because it takes a while for this to pick up steam. But we're reopening the economy. We're reopening. And, and you know, there's a desperate drive to do that after people have been shuttered for so long and livelihoods so harmed. So there's a huge impetus behind doing that reopening. It's pretty hard for governments to say no when case counts are really, really low. But we are creating the conditions over the month of March for this for the variants to really take off. They are more contagious. They're a lot more contagious. The interventions that we have, physical distancing and mask wearing and trying to minimize contact, they're all going to be effective, just not quite as effective. The vaccine, also effective, just not quite as effective. So our tools are a little bit duller and the contagiousness is a little bit higher. And it doesn't have to be a lot higher for us to see a lot of cases. Now, that said, Whereas I do think we're going to see a huge rise in cases, the major concern is not to me that it's deadlier necessarily, is that our healthcare system may get overwhelmed just with a sudden rise in cases. And then mortality goes up for people who would have been fine if only they'd been able to get medical care, if in fact they can't. So that's the thing I'm worried about. That's why I think this risk is being the, being the worst wave of all of them, because this is the one that's actually most likely to overwhelm our healthcare system. If it doesn't, we'll get through this okay. I, 
I think it's going to be short. I think it's going to be a steep spike. And we're going to have to close stuff back down. And what the UK and Ireland tell us is that when you do that, the cases fall off and they fall off rapidly. And people are absolutely fed up with lockdowns, let alone going back into one again. I think what I would say, if it makes people feel better, is that I think this is going to be actually relatively brief. That as the weather here gets warmer, as vaccinations really pick up steam, we're going to be able to, to quell this very quickly. And it's not going to be months upon months. I've, I've said for quite some time that I expect, you know, the summer solstice or Canada Day, I, I expect that to be, uh, to be a time where we can actually celebrate a lot. Not life back to normal, but de- definitely life moving in that direction and moving that in that direction to stay. That, that's my hope. So I, I really do see the third wave as being scary because it, I think it's going to be fairly sudden. And I think the case counts are going to be high and it risks our healthcare system. But again, I think we're going to get through it quickly. That, that's my hope. Do you have any takeaways so far from a year into the pandemic of what you've learned and the sort of biggest lessons so far? Oh, there's a few. Uh, there's definitely a few. I mean, my perspective is a bit different than some other epidemiologists because you know, I, I come at it from social science background. I was a social scientist before I studied epidemiology, and, and I, I spent a lot of time finding intersections there, whereas a lot of epidemiologists are far uh, far more skilled than me on the mathematics side and the microbiology side. Um, and, and so I'm, in that sense, I'm a, I'm a little bit odd. I'm a little bit different. So my takeaways are going to be different than others, I think, in, in that sense. I worry... Um, a lot because I, I I think about information and knowledge use. That's really my day job um, in in organizations and institutions. And I think I, I'm really concerned about what I might call a crisis of expertise. I think my big takeaway is I've known what how expertise is perceived, and I, I understand misinformation and disinformation. I understand these concepts. I don't think I ever expected to see them being so salient and being so influential and being so deep set. And and when people reject expertise, we actually are walk down a very, very dangerous path. That's made worse by communication failures by governments. But but overall there's there's a lot for me to think about in terms of what does that mean? Like how do we how do we do public health in the future? How do we govern this? Experts can't agree on things like safe school openings, for example. That's that, that's a problem as well. Um, governments can't agree that they should be listening to scientists or which scientists to listen to. So that's a that's a pretty big problem. So that that's one big takeaway. Strictly on the epidemiology side, we've learned a lot about uh, respiratory virus spread. Honestly, we know a fair bit about bacterial spread, and we've kind of coasted around assuming that viruses behave in a similar way. And we've learned that we were wrong about that. We were wrong about the importance of touch. Uh, for spreading this virus, we were really wrong about that, um, and we were we were also really wrong about large droplets versus being airborne. The idea of an aerosol that 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 a lot of infection control is predicated on things are either droplet or they're airborne, and there's really nothing in between. Well, COVID's in between, and it makes me wonder whether influenza is also in between, and a few other ones. That has huge implications for how we design physical spaces, for what, how hospitals and, and long-term care homes and schools and even houses should actually be designed. It has a huge implications for, for things like ventilation, for things like social practices. Maybe handshaking isn't so bad. And I've always been an IG, I wish we wouldn't handshake kind of person. So it's been a huge revolution in our understanding. And you know, cold comfort for people who have suffered so badly from COVID is like, well, now we understand it. That's, that's a fair point. 
but I think there, there's still quite a bit for us to do in terms of looking forward to how do we improve public health? Like how do we make less influenza? How do we how do we lever that? How do we design our built environment in order to take advantage of our new understanding? So I think there's a lot to think about and work work on that as well. I think those are my two big takeaways. This has been a really fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to me, Colin. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to do it. That was Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist. My next guest, Dr. Adel Kapper, also voiced concerns about a lack of transparency in the vaccine rollout. And as co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, his organization has expressed concern that some physicians in rural areas aren't being adequately prioritized for vaccination. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for joining me on Down to Business to talk about the vaccine rollout. Had to do it. The last time I had checked, less than 2% of Canada's population had been vaccinated. A lot of people don't actually understand exactly how the vaccines are being rolled out, including you guys, because you've asked for more transparency. How much is clear to you about what's happening? It hasn't been very clear to us and not adequately clear. The groups that are prioritized are not as specific as we would like. Uh, the issue that different provinces are doing it differently, we think, is causing confusion amongst the population. And we would prefer that there be a national standard. You represent people who work in emergency rooms. Can you just maybe give us a a sort of sketch of what it's been like to be inside an ER um, when you aren't vaccinated? We're seeing patients before they're actually identified as being infected with COVID. So we have to treat everyone with symptoms as if they have COVID. It's part of the risk of being in emergency medicine is that you don't know what the patient has when when you first see them. The other problem is that it's adding to what's already been an overloaded system. The emergency department wait times, the overcrowded hospitals, all of that existed even before COVID started. And COVID has become yet another layer of complexity and uh, concern that's added to the situation that was already there before. How has that translated on the ground? I mean, emergency rooms, as a lot of people know, are already stressful places. But if you throw COVID into the mix, what does that look like? All of us uh, are feeling more strained now. It's been there for a year uh, and it's a regular extra, you know, 10 pounds on your shoulders when you go into work. We've unfortunately seen at least one emergency physician in Canada has uh, committed suicide, partly from the burdens of COVID. Uh, So the stress is there and we're waiting to see when there's a break and hopefully the break doesn't just bring us back to the old normal. Everyone sort of wants a reset. You talked about underinvestment in emergency rooms and hospitals. What is the change that you guys are looking for? Well, we think that we can't go back to the old normal, which was long emergency department wait times because the hospitals were overcrowded, because of our long-term care system not being able to take care of the patients who are there. We don't have surge capacity in our hospitals. Hospitals operate at their most efficient, around 85% occupancy. That gives them room to deal with the usual variation, but also 
uh, surge capacity for when events, not like COVID, but just like the seasonal flu occur. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, for the past many years, most hospitals in Canada have been running close to 100 or even over 100%. And we cannot go back to that as being the normal after this because we've learned that was one of the, the weaknesses of the system that hurt our ability to respond to COVID. And that has to be one of the lessons that we learned from this. Is there a model in Canada or another country of healthcare? It's really difficult to import another country's healthcare system because our history and how we got to where we we are is so much different than how others did it. That being said, there are elements that we can learn from and adapt from. Some of the Northern European countries, the way they care for their elderly is much different from the long-term care home model that we use. They do it much more in the community. And those are systems that have already started to see a growing aging population. And that's part of the challenge that we have to deal with is how we handle the increasing number of elderly patients. So I don't think there's any one country that's a model that we can import, but there are many elsewhere, mostly in Europe, that we can take elements and learn and improve parts of our system from. Well, Dr. Atul Kapoor, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. That was Dr. Atul Kapoor. Transparency and communication during a health crisis formed a theme to tie this episode together. And my final guest, Dr. Akwatu Kenti, was recently appointed to chair a Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity, where he's working on misconceptions about vaccines among people of African and Caribbean descent in Toronto who currently experience the highest COVID rates in the city, comprising 26% of total cases, and also the highest rates of vaccine hesitancy at around 30%. So Dr. Kenty, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business this week. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. I wanted to ask you about the Black Scientists Task Force on Vaccine Equity. The Torontonians of Caribbean and African descent, these are populations that, as you put it, are sort of have hesitancy about vaccines. And I was wondering if you could... Maybe explain for people who don't necessarily know what that means. Right. So the hesitancy about vaccines is rooted in two foundations. One is contemporary experiences of discrimination in terms of some of the interactions that they've had with the healthcare system. There's a lot of um, cynicism. You hear some of the misinformation uh, about um, what the vaccine is supposed to accomplish or do that's negative, that's easier to believe than would otherwise be the case. And then there are these historic examples of scientific exploitation that people reference, such as uh, the Tuskegee experiment in the U.S., which only ended in 1972. And it was actually led by a public health agency. So uh, people point to that and say, uh, how can you trust these authorities? Because look at the history. So there's contemporary reasons which validate some type of historical referencing. And then, of course, on top of that is vaccine misinformation on social media, which, you know, is tailored to actually drive vaccine hesitancy. Right. And so, yeah, this is a big issue, a big hurdle that we have to overcome, right? Because there is a lot of skepticism about vaccines. What kind of sort of information do you give out? So we give out um, basic scientific information. I mean, so the way we organize our interactions is around the questions that people have. It's not a lecture. 
style, kind of town hall where you know these are the scientists, they're lecturing, they've come to lecture you on vaccines. No, we take the questions that people have and and respond to those questions in a way really that respects validates their, their positions and but really to sort of elevate or, uh, the discrepancies in some of the science. For instance, when people say, does the vaccine give you COVID? The, the scientists explain that it's impossible for the vaccines to give you COVID, especially you know, the way that it's developed. It's not a live virus anyway. So it's, or will it alter your DNA? Will it give you HIV? I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so you explain it, scientific reasons why some of those views are incorrect. And you say, you know, you need to rethink some of these positions, you know, and we hope that given this additional evidence, take it home and reconsider your decision around the vaccine. That's the approach. That makes a lot of sense. It sort of seems like a, a very sensible approach to this. I'm wondering for, for, for you, if there's a goal in terms of sort of, um, this seems like a skepticism. I mean, you pointed to the syphilis trial in the U.S., so it's another country um, over 40 years ago that it ended, but still sort of relatively recent. So it's, you know, enough people, there's enough people who are alive who live through that, that it's not ancient history is what I mean to say. That's what, yeah, absolutely. And you'd be surprised to know there are people even in Canada who were involved in that and could speak to it from lived experience. And I actually think that it's working because anecdotally, that's the, that's the feedback we're getting. I mean, ultimately, you know, you have a more informed citizenry and that's, always a good thing. Yeah, for sure. This task force is sort of unprecedented in the sense that I don't think there have been a lot of other efforts like this targeted towards vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's unprecedented in Canadian history. And it's the first time we've actually brought together this level of scientific expertise from the Black community and from Black communities. So we have people who across the vaccine life cycle, who know the production, how to produce vaccines inside out, who can speak to regulatory aspects of vaccine production, who can speak to clinical trials, who can speak to what goes into a vaccine. And that is unprecedented. So, you know, it's black history within black history. And, and for the people who are participants on the task force, the ultimate interest really is to save as many lives as possible. We're all affected by this pandemic in terrible ways. And most of us have had losses. And, uh, you know, what's the point about being a doctor and helping others, saving um, lives, but you can't save the lives of your, fa- your own family members. So it really boils down to doing your level best to uh, protect as many people as you can. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Great to talk with you. Yeah, no worries. That was Dr. Akwatu Kenti chair of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity in the City of Toronto. And if you know someone with questions about the vaccine, you can find more information about his task force and the outreach they're doing on the City of Toronto's website. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. You can support Down to Business by rating us on your podcast app and sharing this or another episode. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.